Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was drafted by the Texas Rangers in the 22nd round of the 1977 Major League Baseball Draft. After three years in their farm system, in which he compiled a 22-27 and 27 record and a 3.89 ERA, the Rangers sent him to New York Mets on September 18, 1979, as part of an earlier deal in which the Mets sent Willie Montanez to the Texas Rangers for two players to be named later. The other player the Rangers sent to the Mets was first baseman Mike Jorgensen. He would make his major league debut with the Mets on August 31st, 1980 against the San Francisco Giants out of the bullpen. He would win his first major league start on September 13th against the Chicago Cubs, snapping a 13-game losing streak for the New York Mets. He joins us on a week when the Mets will retire one of his teammates, Keith Hernandez. He may be, in fact, one of the best players to talk about the impact as he was a Met for the four-plus seasons prior to Keith's arrival. With the Mets, he's also went on to be a major league scout and GM. It is always a pleasure to welcome Ed Lynch to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks, Mark. A pleasure to be here. So, so take us back to 1980. It's Frank Cashin's first year as GM. What were some of the things you noticed about the team as far as the minor league side, as they had some young guys like Yubi Brooks, Mookie Wilson, Wally Backman, and Mike Scott when you were down in Tidewater? Well, I came over from the Rangers, and I certainly saw a higher caliber of players um, in the Mets organization. I think a lot of that uh, was because the Mets had finished last so many years in a row. They got, you know, very high draft picks, and they, they did well with those high draft picks. You know, they, as you said, you mentioned some of those names, Wally and Mookie and Mike Scott and, um, you know, Jesse Orozco. They got in a trade, but, uh, you know, there were some quality players on that AAA team. And but when we got to New York, I could see why that team was struggling. It was uh, it was not a very good team. Um, you know, they had trouble scoring runs. The pitching staff was not very good. And, and it was like that my first two and a half, three years in the big leagues. So you get to the big club, like we mentioned in the open in 1980, the manager's Joe Torre at that point. What's your first impression when you arrive with the big club and the clubhouse and just the makeup of that team in 1980? Uh, you know, it was like any other club that was struggling. It was late in the year. I got there, you know, August, late August, September. Um, I pitched in San Francisco, made my debut, did not pitch well at all. And uh, we went on to lose 13 consecutive games. And it was like, you know, like any other team, you know, the play, I can't blame the players at that point. You know, it was late in the season. We were losing every night. There was really no intensity on the field, you know, intensity in the dugout. Uh, and I remember halfway through that week when we lost, or after about a week, when we lost seven, eight, nine, ten in a row and I hadn't pitched, I sat there for 13 days and didn't pitch. After about 10 days, I went into Joe Torre. I said, Joe, am I ever going to pitch again? And he says, you're pitching Saturday. So I went out there and I, and I won and uh, ended the 13-game losing streak on September 13th. So I guess 13 was my lucky number. But, you know, Joe, Joe Torre – you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, the manager either gets too much credit or too much blame. 
you know, I'm not saying he got too much credit for those Yankee teams because sometimes the hardest thing at all uh, of all is to win with the best players in the game. But, you know, it really wasn't Joe's fault. We didn't have the pitching staff. We didn't have the bullpen, the starting rotation. We didn't have the offense. So it was kind of a flat club. Um, and I understood that. But like every other rookie, I was just thrilled to be there. It's interesting you mentioned that because Frank starts remaking the team. He re- he hires George Ramberger, someone he knew from his Oriole days. Some of the young players are just getting, you know, playing time. And in all sports, it seems sometimes that guys that are around in the beginning of a rebuild really don't get a lot of credit for set- setting that foundation. How important was George Bamberger to setting that foundation with young players like Mookie, Wally, and Straw? George was great. Uh, George really helped me in my career. You know, he was a great pitching coach. Uh, you know, the jury's out whether he was a great manager or not, but he was a great pitching coach. And he taught me a lot. He taught me the slide step. You know, he taught me a lot of little things. And, you know, when a guy has is a pitching coach for the Orioles dynasty in the late 60s and early 70s, you're going to listen to him. And he had great stories about Earl Weaver and Jim Palmer and Mike Cuellar and Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson and Davey Johnson. You know, it, it, he was a really good guy. He was very grandfatherly, you know. It, it, he he was really a pat on the back kind of guy. He wasn't a kick in the ass kind of guy. And, you know, us as young players, all of us were so intense that we didn't really need a kick in the ass. You know, we just sometimes you just needed a pat on the back when you're struggling a little bit. So George was really good for, for me personally. Let me jump in for one second. George Bamberg was a pitcher. Is there any difference as a pitcher yourself and having a manager who is a former pitcher? Um, yeah, probably, but, you know, back, back then, you know, the, and it's probably, I don't know what, what the dynamics are now, but, uh, you know, every pitching coach that I had was a former pitcher, you know, um, and and most of them, I say 95% of pitching coaches. Well, I can't say 95%, but more than half of certainly pitching coaches in the big leagues now pitched in the major league level. So they know, you know, what it's like when you're struggling, you know, when you're at that major league level and you're struggling and, and, and you, you know, you're having trouble getting people out and you're tired, maybe your arms bothering you a little bit, you're pitching through some issues. And the last thing you need a pitching coach to tell you is, Hey, hold the ball like this, or get your arm at this angle. You know, you're looking for someone who's been through that, who can, you know, give you some advice on how to get through the rough periods, you know, just get back to the basics you know, when you get in a jam, take something off if you have to, hit your spots. You're not going to throw the ball by anybody. So when you get in a jam, don't try to throw harder. Try to hit your spots more. If it means taking something off, fine. So, uh, But it means a lot when you have a voice in there that has been through what you're trying to go through. And, you know, later on in my career, having a guy like Mel Stottlemyre was invaluable. It's interesting when we talk about George Bamberg, and I remember that's one of the first Met teams I actually covered. I remember guys like Bob Baller, um, you know, they were part of Bambi's Bombers, those guys that would come off the bench. And they all, um, you know, it was interesting just to see the, the dynamic around that team and the, the breaking in of, of Mookie and Yubi Brooks. Um, so it was very interesting. But, you know, he's replaced in the mid, not even midseason, in June of 83. Uh, the Mets are in sixth place at that point, 22 and 36, nine games out of first place. Frank Howard's the manager, and they make that trade for Keith Hernandez. They send, you know, Neil Allen, Rick Ownby to the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you recall how you heard about that trade? And what's your initial thoughts with, with Keith Hernandez 
coming to a team that is nine and a half games out of first place. Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was June 15th, 1983. That's when the deadline was in those days. And I was sitting by the locker and somebody came up and said, hey, you hear we got Keith Hernandez in a trade. And I said, hey, man, it's not April 1st. That's not funny. You know, I mean, I thought it was April <laughs> Fool's joke. And uh, I, I said, who do we trade? And they said, Neil Allen and Rick Ombi. And I knew Rick Ombi from minor league camp and from instructional league. And I was just like, unbelievable. I mean, you're talking about a guy that was the best player on the defending world champion. I mean, it wasn't like a guy that was on the downside of a career and his better days were behind him and his recent production had showed that. It was just a, it was just a, and I've talked to Keith about this. It was just a situation where Whitey Herzog just wanted him off the club. And I heard this from Joe McElvain. Uh, I was talking to Joe McElvain last week and he said, Whitey Herzog called the Mets, him and Frank Cashin and said, We'll give you Keith Hernandez for Neil Allen and either uh, Rick Ombi or um, uh, I forget the curveball. Another pitcher we had in our system who was doing very well at that time. And so who was five years younger than Rick Ombi. So they decided they knew they were going to make the deal, but they wanted to talk to their scouts and make sure they had it right. And the next day they said, "Okay, we'll give you Rick Ombi and Neil Allen for Keith Hernandez. And, you know, we were so happy. All the pitchers got together and, you know, we're high-fiving each other for two reasons. Number one, we got them on our team. And number two, we don't have to face them anymore, you know. And and uh, he made a world of difference to that club. When you say all the pitchers are high-fiving, let alone not having to face him, but when you say he's on our team, was it more of his defense that the pitchers were excited about or was his competitiveness? What was it about him that made all the pitchers high-five each other? Oh well, his defense obviously he was the best. He was the best first baseman in the league, best first baseman I ever had the opportunity to see in my career, in my forty years of Major League Baseball. He's the best first baseman I ever saw, and he was a, a clutch hitter. He was that guy in the middle of the lineup. You're not going to strike him out if there's a man on third and less than two outs. That run's going to score. You can bet a hundred bucks on that. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's illegal. Well, it used to be anyway. But uh, you know, you can, you can. Bet your life on the fact with a man on third base and less than two outs that Keith Hernandez is going to drive that run in. He was just a tough out. He was a professional hitter. He was a professional um, defender. He was a, a leader on a world championship club. Uh, he was an MVP, a batting title guy. I mean, why? how could you not be thrilled to acquire a player like that? So at the end of that season, Keith's first not full season with the Mets. Frank Howard's let go. He's replaced with another guy with Oriole ties and Davey Johnson. More young guys make their way up to the big club, including a 19-year-old Dwight Gooden. How important was Keith to Dwight Gooden's rookie season and, and just, you know, him being there for Dwight? I think it was important. I, I think there was other people probably that were more important than Keith in terms of Dwight. I mean, I think Keith was the most important guy there for people like Daryl, uh, for Mookie, for the offensive players, you know, I mean, he was so good at that, but I think, you know, I think guys like, uh, you know, like Mel Stottlemyre, um, you know, some of the other veteran pitchers, myself, I feel like I, I had a little part in helping Dwight some, but he was such an overwhelming talent. I mean, just point him in the right direction. There's the mound out there, Dwight, and you, you've done enough. I mean, he, he go out there and shut people out and, uh, it was just a, it was a once in a generation 
um, the talent. And I, and I remember when he came up to the, when he came to the big club, I mean, excuse me, when we came into spring training, I remember he had number 64. And in those days, nobody wanted to wear a high number. I mean, now it's fashionable to wear 99 and 65 and all that. But the first thing you did when you got a chance to make the club is you got rid of that number 60 something and got yourself under, under number 50, you know, and, uh, you know, for the whole spring, he's number 64 and he's just dominating. And I remember we're in the outfield one day and, and, uh, you know, I was a lot of the veteran pitchers myself. I was one of the oldest guys and I was 28 years old. And I remember we cornered Davey and I said, Davey, is this guy going to make the club? And great thing about Davey, he was incredibly honest. And he said, you know, Frank said, I, I you know, he can't make it. He's too young. He's, he's got, he's only got two years and he's, you know, he's only 19 years old. And, and we're like, man, he's the best pitcher on this staff. You know, he, you know, he's got to make this club. He says, Hey, I'm working on, it. I'm working on. It. And then like two starts later, he, you know, he pitches unbelievably well. And we got Davey back in the outfield and uh, Davey's going to make the club. And he said, well, Frank said that, you know, to put him in like the tough situation somewhere. And if he thrives in that situation, then we'll think about putting him on the club. So I forget it was somewhere like going to Fort Lauderdale or something like that, or Clearwater where nobody wanted to pitch, you know, you're pitching against the Phillies or the Yankees. The wind was always blowing out. So he started him in one of those tough places to pitch. And he, it looked like a, a big leaguer pitching against little leaguers, you know? And I remember that was, uh, that was like on a Sunday. And then on Tuesday, here comes Dwight running out on the field in spring training. He's got number 16 on him. He said, Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Congratulations, Dwight. And that's, you know, that's when we knew he made the club. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, it was almost a for, for you know, a, a, uh, for sure thing that he was not going to make the club, but his performance was just so astounding. And in those days, they didn't play that you know, play the uh, service time game, you know, leave him down into May. And so you get him an extra year. It was like the best players made the team in those years. So Davey comes in. What changed from that 68-94 sixth place team in 83 to allow the 84 team to go 90-72 and and finish in second place? Well, Daryl Strawberry with experience, Ron Darling with experience, Dwight Gooden, uh, Keith Hernandez feeling comfortable. Mookie Wilson with experience and myself a little more experience. I mean, it was a good club. I mean, it wasn't the same club. It was a much, a much improved club defensively pitching and hitting wise. And Davey just did a great job. He was a very communicative guy. I remember, you know, in batting practice every day during the season, he would walk around in the outfield and talk to all the pitchers, you know, how you guys doing? Hey, you know, I got you slated for Saturday and, Hey, how's your arm feeling? Good job last night. You know, you always knew where you stood. And and one rule of thumb I always used back in those days is, you know, when I was in the bullpen, when that phone rang, everybody knew who was up, who was going to be warming up. And, and that's a sign of a good manager. There's no surprises. The guy's predictable and he's got a plan. He sticks to it. He has belief in you. And that was Davey. He was a great communicator. He had confidence in you. And he made you feel like you belong. So when you look at articles about Ed Lynch, invariably there's mention of the August 7th, 1984 game against the Cubs when he sparked a borough by hitting Keith Moreland with a pitch. Now, Keith has said, if it weren't for the umpire pulling Moreland off you, you would have been totally pummeled in that brawl. I look at some video of this. I see Keith right in the middle, you know, yeah. doing something, pulling people off. What do you remember 
about the brawl, about Keith's reaction both during and after. Well, I don't remember seeing Keith. All I remember is being, you know, it's like when you're a kid and everybody's piling on in the backyard. I was under about 1,200 pounds of beef and and I'm at the bottom of the pile going, get off, get off. And I remember I'm laying on top of Keith Moreland and we're nose to nose. And, you know, I didn't try to hurt him. I hit him in the rear end. He understood that, you know, and I, so we're, we're talking is they're pulling everybody off the pile. I'm face to face with Keith Moreland. He's blowing like tobacco juice breath in my face. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, Hey man, I'm sorry. I had to do it. He goes, Hey, I understand. No problem. They were kicking our rear ends the whole year. He didn't care. You know, I hit him in the rear end and, and, you know, it wasn't like I went head hunting. I said, I'm sorry. We had to do something, you know? And I remember the last thing I said to him is I'm getting up. I've got to use my hands to like do a push up to get myself up. And I said, Hey man, when I get my hands out of here, you're not going to punch me in the face or anything. Are you? And he goes, Oh no, 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 don't worry about it. But you know, later on when I saw the the photos, I saw guys like Tim Stoddard, who was like six, seven, 300, Frank Howard, six, eight, three, ten. Those guys are like getting ready to jump on the pile. And I'm thinking I would have been crushed to death if uh, they didn't get those guys off. <laughs> Uh, so the offseason sees the Mets had Gary Carter. Many people felt that was the missing piece, the final piece. As a GM, looking back at you know all those pieces that came from the time you started in 1980 to the culmination of 86, you know, could you kind of rank some of the important, you know, rank in importance the, the moves and maybe something that flew under the radar that people don't even realize was such an important part of that team? Well, I have to rank Keith Hernandez trade as number one, but the number two trade in that, that era was certainly, uh, well, I got to say Gary Carter. I'll, I'll put Gary Carter in there because he was a, you know, an all-star, but right there was, was the, was Ron Darling and Walt Terrell for Lee Mazzilli. And I love Mads and he's a good friend of mine, but to, to get two middle to top of the rotation 20, 21 year old guys who are ready immediately to come to your big league club and contribute for an outfielder was phenomenal. I mean, that, that's a trade that I'm sure Texas regrets to this day. So we got, you know, 40% of our starting rotation two years later in one trade. And then they turned Walt Terrell into, into Howard Johnson. So that was a huge trade. And then, and, you know, uh, certainly, you know, the Mets did it. The, the three ways you do it, you do it trades, you do it free agency, you do it in the draft. And they had success in all three. You know, look at their draft picks in those years. Daryl Strawberry, Hubie Brooks, uh, Lenny Dykstra, you know, Kevin Mitchell. You're talking about MVP caliber players. You know, the trade, Gary Carter, you know, uh, you know, ironically, the free agents was like the least effective of the three. And, and, and that's the least expensive financially is, is, uh, you know, the other two are a lot less expensive than the free agency. George Foster was a one big signing they had when I was there in terms of signing a, a free agent coming from the outside in. So, you know, the Tom Seaver trade was huge too, you know, to get Tom for that one year. He taught us all a lot about how to pitch and how to act as a professional. So having been part of that turnaround, how disappointing is it not only to be traded in 1986 at the end of June, but if that's not bad enough, they're playing the Cubs when they clinch the division. How tough yeah. was that? That was that was tough. That was not an easy night for me. And I remember standing out in the bullpen with Lee Smith when the final out was made. I actually warmed up to come in that game. I was I was feeling good that night. I wanted to come in that game. 
And the pitcher that was in there was in deep trouble. And I was one hitter away from coming in. And then we got a double play and got out of it. And uh, I remember that night. It was very emotional for me. Um, you know, I remember uh, after the game walking out of the clubhouse and Randy Myers was there. And, I, you know, I, I had a little ill feeling towards Randy because he came to the big leagues. He was a cocky guy and, you know, and, and, you know, I was a competitive guy and I felt he's one of the reasons I was gone and justifiably. So Randy was, a, you know, a star pitcher and he said, Hey, Ed, sorry, you're not part of it. And I remember he said that to me and I looked at him, you know, he got there a few weeks earlier, I think. And I was like, Oh, that's okay, Randy. Thank you. You know, walked away. And, and I remember thinking, man, I was there five and a half years. And then, but, you know, the one thing, you know, it's a business and I knew it was a business going in. And if I said anything otherwise, it would have showed that I was either stupid or naive that, you know, I can't be traded. I'm Ed Lynch. Who's, who's Ed Lynch? Nobody. And, you know, when I was uh, interviewing for the GM job in Chicago, Andy McPhail told me that one of the things he was looking for was a guy with a Cub connection. So, you know, maybe if I didn't get traded to the Cubs, you know, 10 years later, I would not have been named uh, general manager. So or eight years later. So, you know, I try to look at the bright side of everything. And it is a business, but it worked out for me in the end. So after after the Mets win the World Series, did anybody talk to you after that from the team? And what did they say to you about that? Or you just yesterday's news basically because you're gone and traded? Oh, no, I thought I was good friends with those guys. Actually, on November 8th, 1986, you know, three weeks after the World Series, less than that. Jeez, they won the World Series on October 20-something. So two weeks after the World Series, I got married, and Keith Hernandez was in my wedding. So, um, no, I still felt like at that point I had a strong Met tie. But, hey, it was time to move on. You know, I was very happy in Chicago, uh, great city, was treated very well, well there, great teammates. But I remember uh, immediately after the trade, I remember sitting in a restaurant with my wife and there was TVs on and, and the Mets were beating somebody 12 to nothing. And we're in last place and they're 25 games up. And I literally sat there and cried. I really did. I mean, I started balling and I had a, a napkin over my face and the, the waiter came running over. Is everything OK? And my wife's like, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. You know, they thought I was crying because of the food or something. But um, it was a very emotional time for me. But I got a ring and I got a, I was treated very well with a share. And um, I just look upon it as a great time in my life and I'll never look at it any other way. It's interesting because, you know, you mentioned you realize it is a business. But when, when you talk about, you know, in a restaurant and seeing that, you know, people don't understand what it means to be part of something and then to be traded away just, you know, upon someone else that you have zero control over. And as much as you wanted to be there for that, you weren't. Um, we're going to tell, we're going to ask you to put on all three of your hats, um, former player, former scout, former GM, and give us a little bit of a rundown as Keith Hernandez, the teammate from a teammate standpoint, Keith Hernandez from a scout standpoint, if you had to give us a scouting report and Keith Hernandez, if you were GM, why you would trade for him? Well, as a teammate, there was no one better. You know, he, he was not afraid to, to get in your face if you, if he felt you deserved it. Like if I went up there and didn't get a bunt down, you know, in a crucial situation, he'd be waiting for it at the top step of the dugout. Now it would piss you off at first, but what would you do the next day? You go down there and work on your bunting. So you're not going to give him an opportunity to yell at you again, you know, as a, as a, from a scout's perspective, you know, he was, everything is graded on a scale of two to eight or 20 to 80. So, you know, there's subjective grades and there are objective grades. The objective grades are uh, power, 
gain power. So if you hit, you know, 24 to 32 home runs, you have 80 power back in those days. If you run as a left-handed hitter, you run a, a 3-7 to a 4-0, you're, you're an 80 runner. But the other ones, a lot of them are subjective. And so, but he was an 80 fielder. Now, I know they have all kinds of defensive metrics now. I don't believe in them. I, I think there's no way because somebody is eyeballing to make those metrics to, to make, to, to get the information together to put in the computer to come up with a number. To me, to, to judge someone's defense, I have to eyeball them. And I eyeball, I saw team play every day for several years. So, uh, he was an 80 defender. Now he couldn't run at all. I don't think he ever hit 20 home runs, but he was an 80 hitter. You know, if you hit three, 310 to three, above 310, you're an 80 hitter, whatever. So, you know, you're talking about a guy with some really important tools, fielding, hitting, you know, stuff like that. And, and, uh, leadership, intangibles, they call them something you can't measure with a number. He was an 80 there too, you know. Uh, so, uh, as a GM, you saw a guy that went out there. He said all the right things in the media. He posted up every day. As I said earlier, if there was a man on third and one out, uh, he'd give himself up, hit a ground ball. You know, if he's up there and there's, there's a, you know, a three, one pitch infields back early in the game, man on third, uh, one out, uh, three, one pitch about three inches off the plate away. He's going to stick his bat out there and foul it off. Because he doesn't want to walk there because he could walk and then Gary Carter come up and hit a ground ball of short and the inning's over. So he's going to get that run in. So he would foul off a 3-1 pitch, a bad 3-2 pitch, and then maybe hit a weak ground ball to second base and the run scores. And everybody goes, wow, he could have walked there. That was a bad at-bat. No, he's paid to drive in runs. The team that scores the most runs wins. So when you're looking at a team's offense, you look, the first thing you look at is number of runs they score, not their batting average, home runs, OPS plus, whatever, whatever number you want to come up with. It's how many runs you score. And he was a run producer. So, um, that's what I would look at as a scout and as the GM. And he was just such a, you know, he gave the Mets a, a, a little bit of swagger. You know, he was, he was a good looking guy. He was single in Manhattan. You know, you, you know, Garrett, uh, Keith Hernandez was not going to live in Massapequa during the season. You know, yeah. he was going to be in Manhattan and he was going to be out and about. He took very good care of himself. He was ready to play every day. I never saw him at a point where he was not ready to play. He was uh, there posted up every day. And those are things you look at as a general manager, too. And as an owner, you got a guy that's the face of your franchise, your biggest asset. He's the face of your biggest asset. So you take a look. I know you're not the, the biggest analytics guy. You think analytics has been overused. As you, a couple of years ago, I read, you know, I read an article. You quoted saying, "Analytically, you know, how Keith would measure up today." You think with the emphasis of analytics today, Keith wouldn't have had the chance to become the player and leader that he was. No, he he was so good. He would have overcome that. You know, he he. You know, they don't like guys that hit the ball on the ground. They don't like guys that hit line drives through the infield. They don't like guys with level swings. They like guys with launch angle and exit velocity. And hey, that's, that's their prerogative. But you know, I had my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man now, but you know, back in the day I had my chance and now it's their chance. That's fine. You know, I always felt, you know, we used, we used analytics as much as anybody does today. We just didn't package them together and put an acronym on it. You know, we, we use individual numbers, you know, on base percentage was a big one batting average, you know, was numbers we used. Um, 
you know, uh, how many walks, strikeouts was a, a negative. No matter how you looked at it for us, strikeouts were a negative. Nothing good can happen if you strike out unless catcher drops the ball and, and goes back to the backstop and you get on first base. So strikeouts were very frowned on. But, you know, analytics, I think the word means you're analyzing. You're analyzing players the way they play the game. You know, okay, the game's over. Now you analyze what they did. That's analytics. To me, analytics shouldn't be a style of play. It's become a style of play rather than a way to evaluate player performance. Agreed. And people don't realize this. And we've had him on numerous times. Davey Johnson you know, was one of the first guys to use a computer and he would give printouts to Earl Weaver and make suggestions as far as what the Orioles lineup should be. And uh, he carried that over to the Mets. Um, Eddie, thanks so much for your time tonight, especially on a week where the New York Mets are about to retire number 17, your teammate, Keith Hernandez. Incredible insight that you were able to give us tonight. We really appreciate it. We always love when you come on the show. Um, you know, we, we need to have you on more because it's great stories and just great insights. So thanks so much for your time tonight. Anytime, guys. Thanks very much. Ed Lynch, former New York Met, former Chicago Cub, and most importantly, a teammate of Keith Hernandez's, and he was there for a big turnaround from the 1980 Mets through 85 and parts of 86.